this is a poem, and this is what it says. It says, My ex-husband and I fought constantly. Why I married him, I'll never know. For those miserable years, I shed my heavy head to go. Fried poisoning cakes, stripping his brakes, salting his pork chops with lime, wiring his hair, igniting his hair, even though flame was fire every time. I failed each plot till I suddenly thought of a way that he'd set me free. I got rid of him for good, and you know what? They couldn't do a thing to me. I took him back to Walmart. They'll take anything back, you know. They said they couldn't remember selling him, but okay, if I said so. They traded him to my visa and said, y'all come back now, you hear? And they were so nice, polite, pleasant, I took back his mother the next year. They'll take anything back at Walmart, though I've broken a rotten or sweet. And no, what else? This time of year, you don't even need a receipt.
they don't feel that same way. And, and I, I see this in Winchester, and I see this in so many places, and so many lives. People just living their lives as if God doesn't exist. I wonder, you know, there, there's such a thing as, as theistic atheism, and, and what I mean by that, I mean if if I took my if I took my life and I laid it beside an atheist who does not believe, who does not care about the things of God, who doesn't care about Scripture, never reads the Bible, never prays, never really attends church. If if I laid my life down beside it, what would I see as a difference in that life? And I'm afraid. I'm really, I really mean this. I'm really afraid that what we would discover to a great extent that there's not much difference in many lives today of people who say they belong to Christ and the person who doesn't believe in God whatsoever. And that's concern for me. When, when I, I see people making decisions, when the pressure comes on, and when the pressure comes on in those decisions, I see them leaning towards what they want, and they haven't prayed about it, they haven't sought the Lord about it, and they make a decision that is diametrically opposed to what maybe I would think that God would have them to do. And so we're living in times in, in such a place that people live their lives, and they, they're not living according to the precepts of God. I, I once heard three things in marriage that, that, that would help every marriage to be to a place that it would be a strong marriage. And that was one, that they really, truly believe in God. Now, what does that mean? The Bible says in Hebrews that they that come to God must believe that He is God and the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. What does that mean? It means really, I really believe God. In other words, He is my source. Every decision I make, I make it based upon what He shows me from the Word and what the Holy Spirit's telling me in my heart, whether or not I have peace with that. That's what it is. And I also think, uh, not only that, but the second thing is that I live my life based upon biblical principles. Did not Jesus tell us that? Did He not tell us that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? Yes, He did. What's He saying to us? I'm living my life based upon what that book says. And yet I see people living independent of what the Word of God says. Not only that, but I also I also have come to a place that I, I, I you know, that the third and final thing is that that do you that we pray we get so upset with what other people do, but we pray in such a way that God would change my attitude towards my spouse. Not change my spouse, but change my attitude so, to, towards them. And so in those three things, which will make a successful marriage. But yet, I see things happening today when people living their lives independent of God. When I talk to certain people about certain things, there's some people that think I'm a conspiracy. They, they look at when I talk to them about the fact that Jesus is coming and that what's going to happen. And I'm telling you guys, as I read Revelation, as I read things that are happening today, man, it's all laid out there just as plain as the nose is on your face. What's the, even these vaccinations everything, I'm telling you, the mark of the beast has much more to do than just you making decisions. I'm telling you, there, there's some things in this that really scare me to death in the time that we're living. But it also shows me and tells me that Jesus is coming, and it could be just any day and any time. And 
so as I think about this, I'm, I'm, I'm not a conspiracist, but I'll tell you who I am. I'm a biblical realist. I'm a biblical realist. What does that mean? It means I've taken the Scriptures, I've seen what's there, and I believe that what's happening in the day and time that we're living in is exactly what Jesus says is going to take place before He comes. And it's happening. You know, people say, well, you know, Lee, you're not supposed to mix politics with uh, religion. Well, let, let me tell you something. I'm reading through Isaiah right now. I'm studying Isaiah. Let me tell you, Isaiah was current. He he preached about everything that was happening at that time, at that day. That's what we're to do. And so even as we sat here today, you know, uh, man, and, and so what's happening in this coronavirus and all this? I really believe, I believe if I had to take one verse and I had to put that one verse exactly what's happening, I believe what would do, because I believe that God is, is providential. I believe that He is omnipotent. I believe He is... He is in absolute total control, and I believe Hebrews twelve twenty seven would be it. And look what it says. It says now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as those things that are made that those things that cannot be shaken may remain. What does that mean? I believe he's saying to us, God's going to shake things up, and he's going to shake things up to the point that the only things that's going to be left are those things and those people who cannot be shaken. There's a lot of people out there shook up. And I really believe with all my heart that it's going to come a time that God is shaking up things until what's going to be left are those people who really truly believe in Him. You know, and, and I know, I know you look at numbers, you look at all this other stuff, but I will remind you simply how many got out of how many got out of Sodom and Gomorrah? Three. How many got on the ark? Eight. That's exactly what's going to happen. So don't be discouraged by if you look around you and you see other people that are heading south when the Lord has told us to go north. Because it's going to happen. Now, as I begin this message this morning on the gift of singleness, I want to stop and here's what I want to say. I want to say that I'm very much aware this morning that there are many here who are single in this, this service this morning and are maybe watching this. Not by choice. Not by choice. Some of you have lost the person that you love by death, and, and my heart goes out to you. There comes a time in our lives, and you know, and I, I, I once heard that that uh, grieving is the price that we pay for loving somebody, and I would rather have loved had to grieve, then I would not have been able to love at all. But there are many in here today that's lost somebody, lost somebody that's precious to them, that means a lot to them. And God tells us this, He tells us we have seasons in our life. And there's times that He shakes those seasons up. We get so we get so comfortable. We get so at a place that we just we just you know, everything just seems to fit and everything goes wrong. And all of a sudden God just takes that and He just and messes it all up, and man, I'm here, and I, I just don't know what to do. Well, what's happening? I tell you exactly what to do. Lean on Him, trust in Him, like more than you ever have before, because He's doing something in your life. There's something happening, and I would simply say that there comes a time when, even though I love that person, I've lost that person, 
that there comes a time that I have to, rather than grieve, I begin to mourn. It doesn't mean I forget about that person. You know, some people, I think, are so afraid, maybe, if I don't honor them again, that I'm dishonoring them. No. And especially those of us who've lost somebody that we love very much that's gone on to be with the Lord. Man, what what they're experiencing right now compared to what, if we could see them right now, we would say, well, man, here I'm sitting down here and, and I'm all sore out of pieces and worried, you know, and they're up there enjoying themselves. I think if we could see that, what a difference it would make. But there comes a time that we stop grieving and we begin to mourn. What's the difference? Grieving is something we do internally. Mourning is something we do externally. When all of a sudden we begin to talk about it, we begin to talk about all the good times we have, and we remember all those funny stories, and we remember all those things, and gradually there, there, there are times that I know there are times in, in life that when you've lost somebody that there's peace, that all of a sudden you're going along, and all of a sudden here comes something that that, that reminds you of that person, maybe it's a song, a smell, or find something in your home or something and, and, and it's just and it goes back and it's just like as if it was the day when everything happened. And I feel for you that way. But there comes a time when you're able to grieve uh, not grieve but mourn that you're able to talk about it that you, you take those pieces and put them farther and farther apart to a place that finally you're now able to laugh and, and go and get on with your life. And I'm saying to you that God has a plan for you in this. He's providential. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He knows what you're going through. There's some here that have gone through a divorce. And where that you thought you'd be married for the rest of your life, you went through a nightmare. Now all of a sudden you find yourself single. You find yourself thrown out there in the midst of all this stuff. So what do I do, you say? So I'm saying, I'm truly sorry for you, but I think the Lord would have you to go on to live life. Ecclesiastes talks about those seasons, and you're in a different season. Our culture tends that long, our culture tends contends that long-term singleness for many is an incompleteness without any other person. It, you know, it, it's it's a life-changing experience, and they say, "Well, if you're not married, almost it, that's what we're, we contend many times." It's an incompleteness. The Apostle Paul would disagree. He even says this over in chapter 7, verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them that they remain even as I am. What does it mean, even as I am? I believe that Paul was widowed because he was a Pharisee. In order to be a Pharisee, you had to be married. And so I believe he was widowed. And so he said, when it's as good as I am, he's talking about being single. And then he goes on to say that singles, I say to this young people, and I say to you that are sitting out there that your whole life is ahead of you and you're single right now, I'm telling you right now that if you will discover this, that singleness is a gift. I'm saying to those that are widowed, I'm saying to those that, that are divorced, that singleness is a gift. And that's what Paul says it is. He says it is a gift. Look at verse 7. For I wish that all men were even as myself. Each one has his own gift from God. God has given you a gift, and that gift is singleness, if you will see it that way. And and so you see, as a Christian person, the ultimate purpose in my life is to find fulfillment. And I will say this to you. I don't care what you do. I don't care how successful you may become. If you don't find godly contentment in your life, 
that if you don't find that, you'll never be happy. You'll never reach the goals and things you want in life. I don't care. You may reach that corner office. You may drive that big car. You may make the money you want to be. You may have the. You may. You may be the education you want, or whatever else it is. All the goals. You may achieve all your goals, and yet when you reach there, you're going to find out there's just another mountain to go to because your fulfillment was not in God. And if it's not in God, you cannot be fulfilled. Why is it that so many movie stars and so many big executives all of a sudden take their own life? Why is it that they, they have, that you look at their life and their life is miserable? Because they have not found that fulfillment of the Lord. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, are you called by your name? Do you know Christ as your Lord said you're called by a name? Whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I may. You were created for God's glory. You. Not the person sitting beside you. Yes, them too. But you, you were created for God's glory. I don't care. You don't care who you are, what you what you feel, how demeaning you think your life is right now. You were created for God's glory. And while God gave Eve to Adam to satisfy his loneliness, which we've seen, listen, He never intended for Adam to find his fulfillment in Eve. Let me say it again: as much as you love your spouse. As much as you care about that person that you're dating or whatever else it is, God never intends for you to find your fulfillment in that other person. He never does. And that's the problem that we face. So, as a result of that, so your happiness does not depend upon that other person. I have people come in my office that want to talk to me many times about their marital problems, and as they talk to me about their marital problems, the real problem they think is not in them. The problem is, is in the other person. So what am I saying? I'm saying your happiness does not depend upon the other person. Now, let me give you a definition of what happiness is, okay? Are you ready for this? Happiness is, is this. Happiness does not, if happiness does what the world thinks, that happiness depends upon happening. And if your happenings happen not to happen the way you happen to want them to happen, then you're not happy. But if your happenings happen to happen the way you happen to want them to happen, then you're happy. That's what the world thinks. Amen? Your happiness does not depend upon the other person. Thus, the ultimate goal of marriage is for two people who come together that fall in love, want to share the fulfillment that God has placed in their life to glorify Him with the other person. You know, I once read this that said a girl should be so lost in Jesus that for a boy to find her, he's got to come through Jesus in order to find her. That's what needs to take place. And that's what we need to teach our children. Now, you know, thus in marriage, God uses his spouse not for you to find fulfillment in him or her, but to bring you closer to Him. He's using your wife to get you closer to Him. He's using your husband to get you closer to Him. Some of you right now think it's Lord up here. Now, so I read in Ephesians 5, 22, and, and also verse 25, it says, it says, Wives, 
submit your own husband and those kids as unto the Lord. It says for in verse 25, uh, husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for Notice, as unto the Lord, just as, as the Lord loved the church. So your relationship is supposed to be an example of Christ and his love for the bride of Christ is what your relationship and marriage is about. But the ultimate goal of life is finding our fulfillment in the Lord. Now let me say it again. Your ultimate goal in life is to find fulfillment in the Lord and that we bring glory and honor to Him, but it's not dependent on whether or not you have another person in your life or whether or not you are married. And your happiness is not dependent on another person. I think many don't believe that. And thus they get out and maybe they go through a divorce and they get out of that divorce and because they really believe their happiness is is going to be dependent upon another person. First thing you do is jump up and marry the next person that comes along, whatever, and then as a result of that, then they're in all kinds of problems and they've got more problems than they know what to do of. He wins. So Paul writes in verse 7, For I wish that all men were even as in myself, in verse 8, but I say to the unmarried, even, even as myself, in verse 8, but I say to the unmarried, as to the widows, it is good for them that they remain even as I am single. And what was that? What, and what was that single? What, what does it mean? It was single. Now, you know. Now, why? You know. In other words, why did he say that? Some have said it is because of the next verse, verse nine. And so he says, but they, if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better for them to burn with passion. To burn. And what does it mean to burn? It means that, in other words, they cannot control themselves sexually is what it means. Or they burn with passion, they should get married is what he's saying. That's just as simple. You know, that they're, there's a couple and they're dating and, and, you know, they put themselves in continually in one place after another place where their, 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 their passion is, 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 is growing and growing. And, and so what is he saying? He's saying simply, rather than mess up, you ought to get married. That's what he says. It's what he tells them. You know, so he also goes on to talk about someone who's engaged, and maybe they've been engaged with this person and they, and for a long time. They've been dating for a long time. And so verse 36 says, But if any man thinks he's behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she's past the flower of her youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. What's he saying? He's saying if you're dating somebody and you've given the intention that you're all going to get married, and you go on and go on and go on and go on, but you never marry that person. He says, "Let you know." He's saying that's not that's not true. You ought to go on and marry the person if you give them that that idea. So, but that's not the main reason. In other words, we've always thought that the reason you should marry is so that you won't be controlled by your sexual passion. That is not the reason. He's saying here that Paul is saying in this that we ought to go on and marry. That's not the man. He goes on. Why singleness? Because singleness is a gift. I wish, I wish uh, you could understand what I'm saying. Singleness is a gift. And so he says this in verse 32 and 33. He says, But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And, and what's he saying? It's just common sense. What's he saying? He said, if you're married, you'll care for the things of your spouse and your 
and, and your time will be taken up to a great extent caring for the needs of your family. And that ought to be right. If you're married, you ought to care for the needs of your family. I have no respect for any man that doesn't care for the needs of his family or the woman who does not care for the needs of her family. If you're married, that's what ought to be taking place. But he goes on to say, but if a single person, you're free to care for the things of the Lord. So the first thing, why be single? is so that you now, because you're single, God's given you the gift of singleness so that you now can minister to the Lord and not be taken up with some of these things. My heart goes out, and I and I and I read I read some of the missionaries that have that have gone to some terrible places to to minister to, and as they've gone to those places to try to minister to, um, they take their wives with them. And many of those places, like Hudson and some of those other people that were, you know, in Burma and all these other, their wife literally died. You take your spouse and the Put them in those kind of places. Man, what faith is that going to take? That the, the person that you love and care about, you're going to put them in unbelievable circumstances where they could potentially be killed or martyred or whatever else. And I, I know that would be tough. And so he's saying simply here that if you're single, you can really find that fulfillment in the Lord. In this. So he goes on, if you're single, then God is giving you a wonderful privilege of being free to do His work. But there's another reason Paul is exalting singleness. Listen to what he says in verse 30, 29 and 32. So I'm talking to some of you that are single right now. For whatever reason, if you're single, listen to what he says over here in 29 32. So, so he says this, But this I say, brethren, that the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be though as they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing passing away. He goes on, but I want you to be without care. He who unmarried cares for those things of the Lord, how he might please the Lord. So what's he saying? He's saying one of the reasons God has given you the gift of singleness because the Lord is coming. He's saying the Lord is coming. You can now use your time in this time that we have here to, to use for Him. He's saying time is short and our energy should be turned towards serving the Lord. Because if we're not careful, we'll miss the whole point of what God is trying to get over to us. The glory of being single in the Lord. First you find significance in serving the Lord and a fulfillment you cannot find in any other way. Let me say it again. You find significance in serving the Lord and a fulfillment you cannot find any other way. You find a purpose and a reason to live, to get up and go to work every day. To go to work in such a way that you have opportunity to lead somebody to the Lord. So why should I preach to single people on marriage? and those who are single, widowed, or divorced? The answer is that single people cannot live their lives well without a balanced view of marriage. If a single person does not have the balanced view of marriage, they will, they will either over-desire marriage or under-desire marriage, and it will distort their lives. And as a result of that, Paul says in 7-8, it is good that they remain single, but there's nothing wrong if they get married. He's saying it's not wrong to either way. And verse 27 and 28, if you do get married, he said, I'm trying to spare you from all 
the trouble that married couple experience. And I would just simply say that to you. You're really battling over this. You get married, not get married, or whatever else. And then you need to follow me sometimes in my office and listen to some of the couples that sit in there and talk to me because you did. Think twice about going to the board. Do this or not. And that's just what he's saying. I'm just saying. Marriage is the most wonderful thing that can happen to you. But you shouldn't go to a family reunion and somebody looks at you and says to you, you know, hey, when are you ever going to get married? You know? Well, when, when is this going to happen? When, you know, we, we put so much pressure on people that are single. Uh, uh, you know, whatever. So, so what is he saying? He's saying it's good that you're single because as you're single now, because time is short, you can really serve the Lord. Now, that's all things different from what Paul wrote in Ephesians 5 about husbands love your wives and, and, and wives submit to your own husbands. So why is Paul saying this to a single person to remain single until the Lord brings you into a relationship? And notice it is the Lord that brings you into a relationship. Paul is saying both being married and not being married are good conditions to be in. Thus, we should be neither overly elated by getting married or overly disappointed by not being married. You know? But in this culture, the pressure is there, and many of those who are single will tell you the family who put pressures on them to get married. And you always got that aunt or somebody that's always trying to fix you up. Somebody wants to just well, they got this cousin or got somebody, you know. But they don't, you know. And, 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 and the moment they say to you, they got that one person But this culture, you know, that, that's what it is. But the truth is, Christ is the only spouse who can truly fulfill us, and God's family is the only family that will truly embrace and satisfy. I want you to be satisfied. I want you to be fulfilled. Christianity was the first religion that held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. Now you say, well, Lee, all this stuff you're talking to me about right now, you know, I am the church, I'm married, and this doesn't apply. Well, I'm just going to tell you why this applies. Because one clear difference between Christianity and Judaism and all traditional religions and cultures, they made absolute value. They made an absolute value of the family in bearing children. There was no honor without family honor, and there was no lasting significance or legacy of without leaving heirs. So without children, you vanished and your future was bleak. But wait a minute. Jesus and the Apostle Paul were single. And, and so when society tries to somehow say human beings who are not married are less fully formed than married people, but really Jesus was single... And guess what? He was perfect. He was perfect. Paul's assessment in 1 Corinthians 7 is that being single is good, conditioned, blessed by God, and in many circumstances, it is actually better than marriage, is what he's saying. So as a result, the early church did not pressure people to marry. Widows were supported by the church, and the church so supported widows, widows that they did not have to rebarry. That's where the church is saying. The Bible tells us that pure religion above everything else is what? To visit the widows and their affliction and their orphans. And so, have we done that, church? That's what we as a church have got to ask ourselves. Have we taken care of those widows in our church? Now, we've got a ministry that I feel like that, you know, I, I know that Kathy and 
really works is, you know, and, and it's called uh, it's called James one twenty seven, and, and that's what it is. So it's it's, and we try to call those people that are that are in our church that are with them. And, and if you get one of those calls, don't think that, that okay, well they're saying I'm old. No, we're not saying that. We're trying to check on you and make sure we don't want you on an eight foot ladder trying to put a light bulb in some place that you're going to fall. Let us send somebody over there to try to help you, or whatever else it is, or what. What you going on? If you've got, you've got a building project, or you're just trying to, we may not be able to come over there and do it for you, but maybe we can suggest somebody that will save you money in that. That's what we're trying. We're supposed, as a body of believers, to take care of our older Christians in this church. And that's what we're supposed to do. So, man, if you want, you want to minister, there it is. And I know, I know there's other people that help her in that. Uh, so, so, but for instance, when Caesar Augustus, Reigned widows face great social pressure to remarry, even fined if they fail to marry within two years. Yet the church stood ready to sustain poor widows, allowing them a choice as to whether or not to remarry. Why did the early church have this attitude? Because the Christian gospel and hope of the future de-idolized marriage. And Christians who remained single were making a statement that our future, and listen to this, is not guaranteed by the family. It's guaranteed by God Himself. So if you're single, your future is guaranteed by who? Jesus Christ. Not whether or not you get married. If you get married, praise God. If you don't get married, praise God. And Christians who remain single are making a statement that our future is not guaranteed by the family. The church also gave security that they would care for you in your old age. Now listen to what it says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. It says that there should be no schism in the body, but the members should have the same care for one another. Now, Jesus is not coming back for a, a body of believers that's separate. Because if you take that body and you separate, what do you get? You get a corpse. He's not coming back. He's coming back after a whole body. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer. That it is, and one member honored, and all members rejoice with it. So we rejoice with one another, those who rejoice, and we, we weep with those who weep. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, you're the body of Christ, and members individually. The experience of deep repentance and salvation by grace through the cross of Jesus Christ meant this. It meant that most fundamental beliefs about the world and myself now align with those other Christians make me feel closer to my brothers and sisters in Christ more than anybody else in my own family. And that's the truth. I feel close to you. Why? Because we have that belief in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I'm a Christian first. Even before I'm white or I'm black or Hispanic, that we would be one. That we would be one. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says, But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And verse 10 says, Who once were not a people, but now are a people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained, have obtained mercy. It doesn't mean that I abandoned my family or my ethnicity. That makes my family great and also makes my ethnicity even greater. But I'm a first above everything else a Christian. But if we're real, the Christian church today doesn't seem to understand the greatness of singleness. So many believe and live their life as if you're single, you're living your life deprived of life itself, which is a lie. But the person who allows Christ to have the first place in their life 
that is single can say, I'm not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly desire a husband or wife, nor am I too spiritually mature to possibly need a husband or wife. No, I'm single because God has so abundantly been good to me because this is the best for me. That's what they come to the place in their life. Some say, oh, I, I could only find, if I could only find the perfect mate, like a Disney-style romance. Well, let me just tell you something. You've got to kiss a lot of frogs before you think it comes along. And I'm a Christian first. As a single adult, I have found my fulfillment in Christ. Listen to this again. I'm a Christian first. And as a single adult, I have found my fulfillment in Christ. But what does that say? It says that you, as a single, are living a fulfilled life in Christ, and that Christ in your life, because you've been crucified with Christ, and that is no longer you who live, but Christ Jesus that lives within you. And the life that you now live, you live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved you and gave himself for you. We don't need another person to authenticate my life. provider, or can she cook, or even what do they look like? But have they seen the purpose of Christ in their life? Because here it is. How many Christians enter into a disastrous relationship with a person who doesn't know who they are in the Lord, and that relationship becomes like a drowning man who pulls the other one down when he tries to save This is why 2 Corinthians 6.14 is written. Listen to what it says. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness and lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? If your purpose is finding significance in Christ, then what fellowship do you have with someone who is not a follower of Jesus? That's what it is. What communion, what accord, or what, what part do you have with a person who's walking in darkness and you're walking in light? If I ask you who you are, what would you say? Say you're a teacher, would you say you're a factory worker, would you say you're a lawyer, would you say you're a doctor, a nurse, or whatever else it is? But that's not who you are. If you know Jesus, the first thing you are, I'm a Christian before anything else. I'm a Christian before anything else. I'm a I once heard a lady, a little lady, went out of the church that had a vision in the church. And he asked her, said, Do you minister in this church? Or who are you? And she looked at him and she said, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. She's cleverly disguised as an assembly That's your opinion. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. She's cleverly disguised. If you get into serious relationship with someone who's not a follower of Christ, your purpose in life will not be fulfilled. So the idea is that you're busy in life celebrating singleness and the gift of singleness and when I... And when, and when someone comes along celebrating your life in Christ and, and you find one another. I got a welcome to this one from Nancy DeMoss. Who works for Nancy DeMoss? I mean, she really does a great job. Teaches Nathan. I don't get into all this stuff about whether somebody's a Christian or not a Christian. I just, I, I listen to her and the word. I can tell when somebody's anointed or not. She's been teaching for years and she's been 
that God doesn't care. That's how we think that God's given up on us. About that time. Then as a result of our Gentiles, God comes along and He says, I never will forget standing in, standing in the yard seeing my kids drive off. And as they drove off, uh, I started having a pity party for myself. And I remember standing there uh, thinking, I will never, I will never get married. I'll never have another home. And I started thinking that, you know, that I, well, maybe I should have got my wife and my kids. something 
did not have. I remain with him because I have something I will not release. I came to him as a stranger, and I remain with him in the most intimate of friendships. I came to him uh, without a future, and I remain, remain with him certain about my destiny. I came, I came with a thunder cry for the poultry that had 330,000 vehicles. I remain with him knowing that truth cannot be uh, all in secret. Truth, by definition, is true. Significant. You know, you say, well, Lee, what? You can go home and today and you say, well, what did, what did Lee preach about? He preached about truth, but that's not really what I preach about. He preached about fulfillment. Fill my life. 